So, Pierce, thank you very much for, for joining me today on the, the Strong Startup Podcast. Um, we're going to dive straight in and maybe give the audience a little introduction to who you are. So if you could describe yourself in a traditional startup elevator pitch or a tweet, as I like to say, and that'd be great so everyone can get a chance to, to know you. Yeah. So uh, in summary, I am a guy who can sell stuff and I particularly know how to sell brand new stuff, uh, brand new tech. I've done it successfully a bunch of times. I've learned a ton of lessons along the way, and that's really my superpower, if you want to use that term. I love it. That's a fantastic tweet. I love it. Have you used that yourself on Twitter or LinkedIn post yet? No, no, I haven't actually. I mean, I thought about it a few times. I mean, I do have, uh, I mean, the super. I do like the sort of superpower idea. It's kind of, you know, the sort of childish uh, thing, but uh, it is helpful to sort of think of yourself and what is your superpower. And like, and if I boil it down even more, and it kind of scares me sometimes, people believe me. And that sounds ridiculous, but people actually believe me. And sometimes I think, God, if I if I went crazy and abused that, I could do I could do terrible damage. But but that is it. Uh, and you know, and I don't abuse it. So uh, and over a long career, it's served me well. So that's it. Yeah, it's good. But I think you have to have the vision as well. I was just reading about that in uh, the One Thing by Gary Keller. I don't know if you know that book, but um, he was discussing about having a vision and then going beyond whatever that goal is. You know, like kind of doubling yeah. your your ultimate goal because we all set limits on ourselves, right? So yeah. I like the idea of a superpower as well. Well. Yeah, it, it, it is a very good point. And I would say that I it took me, it, it's taken me nearly 20 years to figure out how to use the power. And and I'd say what I figured out relatively recently, because I've set up a, a fund, what I figured out relatively recently is that actually the best place to use uh, that superpower is in, in an early stage deep tech fund when I've set up deep tech seed fund. And I, like, I can explain the history of, of that, but uh, that is absolutely the best uh, way to get value from being able to do what I'm able to do. Yeah, that's really interesting because I've kind of found that myself through this podcast and I do like these daily videos and stuff. It's kind of like you find a place to put your passion, basically, or, you, or in your case, mm. you find a place to, to use your super um, power in the best uh, way possible. But that's a really good point. Maybe you could just like dive in briefly to like a little bit of background to who you are or, yeah. you know, what exactly is the Deep Tech um, uh, Seed Fund and how did it come mm. about? That would be very interesting, I think. for the audience. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I'll go kind of around the houses a little bit, but it will, it will come to a point. Um, so I started as a techie, did a computer science degree. My first uh, job was in an American multinational called Wang Computers. And I was developing software for banks and various customers of Wang like that. And uh, I was always involved with some of the sales guys. I was being brought out on sales calls to talk about some of the tech. And then uh, the sales manager when a position came up said, hey, you should move into sales. So I got kind of pushed into sales. And it was uh, sobering, really, because, I mean, Wang at that stage was a failing company. It was part of the kind of one of the early, it was one of the early batch of computer companies. So there was a whole bunch of them, Unisys, uh, Burroughs, uh, DEC, uh, and IBM. And like the only one that survived was IBM, ultimately. All the others failed. Um, and Wang was beginning to fail at the time I moved into sales. And we, we had a kind of commodity type product. So it was very interesting, you know, going out to market, trying to sell something, which was essentially the same as what a bunch of other people were, were selling. Um, and except that you were selling it on behalf of a company that people were already beginning to know was failing. So it was, it was, it was. That's a, that's a bit of a tough sell. So It was a tough sell, you know, and I, and I remember, and I remember, and this is a sort of a behavior I, I, I see in a whole bunch of uh, tech founders. Like I remember a bunch of times researching some idea about go to market 
And I had a particular patch, like I didn't have a particularly good sort of sales territory. And I came up with all sorts of ideas as to promotions I thought would be great and we would do well. And I remember lots of times thinking, this is the one now, you know, and I would put out some big mail shot or something like that. And I would go into work the next day, you know, waiting for the response, waiting for the phone to ring, you know, after sending out, you know, 4,000 pieces of direct mail or something like rubbing that. your hands together, you know? Yeah, yeah, I come mail. in early, I'll come in early. You know? uh, yeah. and, and the phone would not ring once, you know. And, and after you have that experience a bunch of times, you realize, and this is what most uh, tech founders don't realize, and especially deep tech founders who get kind of mm. overexcited about the thing they've been working on for years, is that until you go out there and engage with the market, you do not know, you know, you are very, very often completely wrong. No matter how uh, compelling you think your offering is in theory, uh, you don't know until you engage with the market. Yeah. Um, and, and so anyway, so so... so so I worked Wang for a couple of years in sales, and then I decided I wanted to get involved in international sales. And and in Ireland, uh, because I was living in Dublin at the time, uh, the only way to do that was was working for companies that had their own tech. Um, you know, they they had their own intellectual property, their own technology. They were selling it internationally, and I got a lucky break. I got into a great company called Eurologic, and we had a great data storage related uh, product, our own product, and. I was very lucky. I had a kind of an understanding boss who gave me a, a, an existing sales territory to look after. And I had a bunch of business development to do. So I had real business. So I was kind of like paying my way in terms of sales from the existing uh, business. And I got an opportunity and got plenty of time to experiment on stuff in the business development. And that was really the making of me. And I was very lucky that I got that. You know, a lot of the time you just don't get that kind of luxury. And in that time, we had sort of two sets of products. One was... Uh, you know, our sort of existing product set. And then the company was getting into RAID systems like disk arrays, which was very new at the time. And uh, and I had the luxury of doing some really long kind of business development stuff. And notably, the one that, the one that kind of, uh, you know, I'm still very proud of is I, I got the deal whereby we provided all of the data storage uh, to all of the Siemens Medicine Issue Technic uh, uh, product like all the CT scanners, X-ray scanners, all that stuff. They were all going digital, going from you know film to digital, and it took two years. But we basically got the deal to provide all their data storage, and it it's was a big fish. it was a big fish. It, it was a big fish, and we kind of we started the arrangement uh, like they were interested in, in some things that they knew we were using, and there was a couple of people using the same component, and they spoke to several people who were going to use that same component in their RAID system. And we did not have a product, you know, uh, so we engaged with them without a product. And this is the the really big thing, you know, and, and, and in the parallel with us developing the product, we engaged them for two years. And, and eventually, like the last six months was kind of, you know, destructive testing, like really deep standards stuff and so on. But, you know, and, and we ultimately got the deal. But at the start, we did not have a product. Well, this would be another recommendation you'd probably give to startups, right? Not to wait so late, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. And don't think you need to raise millions. I mean, it's it's absolutely my my mantra now. Uh, and I did I did the same thing in a couple of ventures subsequently, but 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 that was the key learning that you know if you have the right process, um, if you have the right process and you have something that is going to be unique, like if there if you have good reason to believe that what you're going to have, sorry, if you have good reason to believe that what it is you are developing is going to be unique because of something you already have or some capability you already have. Mm. And that is enough to hook people, uh, you know, because they are looking for a solution. They are looking, they are looking for that unique solution that, that only you is going to be able to, to create. And if you have the right process for engaging with them really early, then before you've completed your product, um, 
you know you can get meaningful engagement with end customers and if you do that correctly then funding everything sort of looks after itself it's like and, and that's domino right yeah yeah, yeah. And, and that's particularly relevant for deep tech guys because the deep tech guys i mean you know it's different if you're developing a, a new piece if you're developing a new software-based venture um you know, I always use the example sort of Airbnb for dogs or something. Yeah, you know, you can exp- you can go out, you can you can have nothing. You can go out there, you can be business led. You can go out and explore what's the market need. You can figure out what people will pay for and develop it. You know, pretty much as you go along. But if you're in in deep tech, you've a much bigger commitment. You've been working on something for years, and now and now you're going out and and commercializing the kind of what you've got. You've kind of built it, and you're hoping that they'll come. Yeah, uh, essentially. Uh, so so uh, so having the right process for doing that. Is is essential to your whole funding journey, and I know we've we uh, carry on through your questions, and I put more of a structure on on this. Yeah, no, perfect, perfect. Thanks so much. I mean, already you've given two or three very interesting tips that people can take away about what they should and shouldn't do, or more like what they should do in terms of how they can approach customers early on. But um, let's let's dive in a little bit because we previously had a private conversation discussing kind of the state of startup funding in Europe. And this is always a hot topic. Everyone wants money, uh, even before the idea is maybe uh, validated yet, right? We will get to the validation part later when we talk about talking to customers and how many you should talk to. But maybe you could give us just a brief overview of what is your perspective on the state of startup funding and the type of funding that's available for uh, specifically deep tech or specifically, you know, um, tech-based innovations that are coming out of universities and that are looking to make that transfer into, into the business world. Yeah. So, um, so it's very interesting and tricky. And I mean, and I've had conversations with several of the policymakers in this area, and several of the people who are providing, you know, some of the very large pots of, of funding. Uh, the first thing that most people don't, or the first thing that most people don't realize, and it isn't obvious, is that the vast majority of early stage funding. Um, even after a spin out, even even after something spins out of a university, the vast majority of the early funding is government funding. Uh, you know, most of the early stage venture capital um, firms in Europe um, get most of their money from the government, from European Investment Fund or from a national fund or a regional regional fund. And um, you know, a lot of those instruments, a lot of those funding instruments, were created based on the idea that the problem with you know. Uh, with early stage activity is is lack of funding and lack of funding certainly is is part of is part of the issue but but the there is now i would say an excess of um i would say funding that's too easy to get and now let me let me explain um from a from a european from a european or from a governmental point of view you know you're in um you know one of the uh, states of Germany, and you want to encourage uh, uh, new new startups to happen, and there's no uh, pr- perhaps there's no uh, venture capitalists active in your area. There's not enough of them, so you kind of try to prime the pump. You try to uh, uh, you try to uh, provide extra uh, investment cash for for startups to come along. And what happens a lot in deep tech is that there is almost too much money. So people have there are there are a lot of funds that are set up, and they are tasked with placing money. So you have a fund that is is given. It's typically thirty or forty million. Typically, you can't, you won't be, you won't be allowed to set up with less than that. Yeah. And then you put give two or three people the task of running that fund, 
And they know that they need to make 10 investments per year or six investments per year. And it's kind of the best 10 things that come along. It's not necessarily 10 things that are worth funding. And in a lot of sort of small areas, there aren't 10 things worth funding in that year. And so what I have to really agree with you, sorry, on that point, because, you know, it's often a very difficult thing to get the quality that you need with these type of government funded or European funded programs. Right now, it does serve a purpose, uh, you know, and from a government point of view, it serves um, from a government point of view, it serves one purpose at least. And that is that if you have a lot of early stage ventures, you know, and they get half a million here, a million there. Um, they are employing people and they're paying taxes. Uh, and, you know, there's maybe five people in that venture, or, you know, uh, maybe they, they get up to 10 and then and, and then eventually fail and they mostly fail. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the, the net cost to the taxpayer is, is actually relatively small because of the, uh, excuse me, because of the, there's a, there's a spinoff and the income tax and so on that they pay. Yeah, it's kind of an but, economic benefit, right? And then they have skill transfer as yeah. well. They learn something. That's right. I was just going to say that's the second benefit that um, that it's a very it's a very crude mechanism. But certainly when they come out of that, uh, that when they come out of that failure, the people know a lot more and they're much better. They're much better at it the second time that they do it. The problem, the problem, though, and this is an area where we are particularly focused is. Um, and it's it's kind of unique to deep tech a little bit. Uh, so first of all, just to explain when I say deep tech, I, I really I mean, um, I mean, um, defensible intellectual property based uh, ventures. So it's the type of thing that is coming out of a university. The people have been working on it for years. There is a deep reserve of background intellectual property, and now they're taking that to market. So 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 that's what I mean. Just to be clear, <clears throat> and so in the deep tech uh, situation, uh, if um, if you are on the right track. So you've been working on something for years and you, and you know, some people try to have market assessment uh, activity really early on. In other words, am I working on the right problem at all? And it's next to impossible to do that because if you're working on something for years, you know, there's too big a lag. So you kind of have to just work on what's interesting to you, do blue skies research. And then at a certain point kind of come up for air and say, okay, I wonder, is anybody going to be interested in that? Okay. And the, the big problem, and I know it's one of your later questions, kind of what is the problem? The, the big problem is that process of assessing, is there a market for what I've got, is mostly badly done. Mm-hmm. And, and But despite that, it is too easy for people to come out of a university and they're credible people, you know, they're always very clever people. And, uh, and you know, they can raise quite a lot of money quite early on from grants and early stage investment. And they can, and the problem is, that usually most of the money is spent continuing to work on the research. They don't do enough market engagement. And also there's a kind of a subtle, this isn't an obvious um, issue, but it becomes obvious if you're trying to provide the later stage funding or if you're a commercial funder. There's a subtle problem, which is that they create the spin out, they get money from an early stage uh, VC that places a value on the company. And then when they go to the next round of funding, which is... uh, but by which time they're too far advanced to be getting the kind of early stage state funding, they go to the private funders mm-hmm. and they're expecting a much higher valuation, but they don't merit that valuation. Uh, the, our, the original funding inflated their valuation. And then by the time they come to the next stage, even if they merited that funding because the business is going better, the valuation is all wrong. 
yeah. and uh, and we and other private investors say no i'm sorry i'm not interested in that I, I, you know sure i could do a negotiation with your early investors and say hey look you know we need to kind of revalue things and so on but it's just not worth doing and so a huge number of ventures fail simply because they got the wrong funding early on early on so they can't um, get the series a or the series b or whatever basically yes. from the private investors yeah and is, a quick question is that valuation down to the experience of the people from the public money that is that are dishing out this or is it more that it's inherent in the the relevant risk that they're taking at such an early stage <laughs> that they try to value higher so that they can make a better cut later it is uh combination of things yes there are a lot so um it's a combination of things it is certainly the first one yes so there are mm. there are a lot more people working in early stage venture capital and grant funding than there are people experienced about doing early stage startups yeah. yes so a lot of the people have come from a finance background um or a big company background and they've not done the startup thing so that that is that is absolutely true mm. um and uh and then you know you can't you, um you know there is a the there is a scarce there is a scarcity of people who have done it a bunch of times before and if you look around the world there are different markets so if you look at you know silicon valley there's a lot of recycling of talent and so on so that's the furthest advanced you know and then in various other places so you can see like you can see clusters in estonia and sweden and places around some of the successful companies uh, you know, in Ireland around Iona Technologies, for example, there's a whole bunch of recycling. So it happens very in very localized places around the world, uh, but in general across Europe, it is uh, there's a there's a dearth of that sort of uh, people who can who who can do that that recycling, and that void is filled then by just people who are taking the jobs in the in the in the funds, mm -hmm. and like and and it is like it is serving a purpose in the absence of in the absence of experienced people who can place the money really smartly. The idea that there's just money is actually better than a lot better than nothing. So I'm not, you know, I'm not, um, I'm not knocking it. You know, it, it, if it weren't there, it would be worse if it weren't there. But but it would be worse if it weren't there. <clears throat> but it does cause a problem for the type of ventures that we're looking for, and that is the ones that are the real rock stars. Uh, so if you are, uh, you know, so our our vision, um, and this is the vision we've sold to the sort of funds that cooperate with us in Silicon Valley. Uh, our vision is that across Europe. Uh, there are a subset of ventures every year that based on the early market traction are going to be the real rock stars. They, they stand to be highly successful. And uh, the danger currently is that those companies can get some of that, let's say, dumb money too easily and they can not focus on the big opportunity well enough. And in Europe, there's a big problem in most countries that the uh, venture capital is very local. Um, and they, they, you know, you've, you've, you have a technology in France that could be world leading, um, but you, uh, you get engaged with some early adopters in France locally. You get engaged with investors in France, and maybe eventually, then you get become a mid-sized company. You get bought by the French company. If you are globally leading, you never get out to the international investors. You never get out to the global companies. And it's the very same in Germany, Britain. In, in all, it's the same in all of the bigger European countries. Mm -hmm. Things are very national, and that that's an issue. Uh, so what's my point? Um, so so yeah, my my point is that the it's my point complex, is, right? For it, sure, it, it's complex. But sorry, my my point is that the easy availability of early stage money uh, does not do a service to the really ambitious, uh, really promising European companies. Th that's mm -hmm. the point. Mm -hmm. They they can become lazy with the early money and they can get overvalued with the early money and they can go in the wrong kind of direction. 
Yeah, so he basically put a kind of a um it can put you at a disadvantage in that sense right uh, like one step below uh, where you would like to be when it comes to later on for funding when you're looking at talking to the big dogs maybe in silicon valley or whatever to really yeah. help to, to scale your your venture right yeah yeah uh, yeah and i can go on about <laughs> go on about any of these yeah sorry there's, there's sorry there's related one one step below one, one step below the it's not just the funding it's it's commonly they're one step below the global opportunity so they have not engaged with the appropriate um world's leading early adopter customers that they should be dealing with yep. um you know and, and so they are showing the way to their competitors because people like to think they are far far ahead but in reality in most areas of deep tech nobody is ever very far ahead because uh you know the research that has led to their breakthrough uh, is probably elements of it have been published several times. Uh, you know, in, in academia, in most sectors, people are sort of, you know, inching up, you know, making progress. Uh, and every now and again, somebody gets slightly ahead. Yeah. So the opportunity with deep tech is to get slightly ahead and then to do the commercialization stuff really well and get far ahead or get access to the really deep pocketed funders who can push you far ahead. But it's never, so if you don't do that kind of global engagement with funders and customers really early on, then what happens is you're slightly ahead in Germany. Uh, and you create a venture and it's being rolled out to various cities or various uh, companies, whatever, and there's publicity about it. And the guy who's slightly behind you gets a lot of money in Silicon Valley and goes way ahead of you uh, because they watched what you've, you've done. Whereas, you know, and that, that's it. So it's about it's about uh, maximizing your like if, if you are globally leading, if your technology is globally leading, it's about making sure that you uh, have the you you connect with the appropriate global opportunity as early as possible, and you connect with the types of investors who can uh, actually provide the kind of really differentiating big money uh, to you as early as possible. Th that's that's the part that is missing in Europe. You're slightly ahead. You can get local money easily. You can you know more and and uh, and there's lots of characteristics of deep tech founders which are make them really really averse to engaging with the market they would re they would and this is the same with most tech founders but particularly deep tech they would really really much prefer to stay in the lab and spend to, to use the investment money to create the product the finished product the perfect product before they engage and then they lose then the opportunity goes away from them and that happens in europe a lot uh, so so i have to ask them what's the cure because i i know that there's these you know new startup programs that are yeah. based in universities which are of course I think extremely important at the bottom of the pyramid, right? For for successful startups mm -hmm. to inspire people to first of all think even about a potential yeah. innovation from their research to mm -hmm. become a product. Um, but there's probably a lot of gaps there still. So so what in your mind would be a nice solution to putting on this global perspective and having these uh, science-based entrepreneurs um get the advantage they deserve to bring their tech to the, yeah. to the global market? Uh, so I would say, um, so a little, bit, a, little bit of history, a little bit of history, first of all. Uh, so over the years, there has been a small number of, uh, you know, phenomenally successful science-based or engineering-based like engineering uh, technical successes. Uh, and they're often huge, you know, they're often the very biggest, you know, like Thomas Edison, Alexander Graham Bell, you know, even the Google guys who came out with the, you know, came out of Stanford with a particular, uh, you know, idea. Uh, 
uh, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, I and mean, it wasn't really deep tech. He just, he, I think he just got lucky, uh, you know. Yeah, uh, but, good but timing, he, right? Yeah, good timing. Good, good entry with the market with the university. Uh, good, good entry, but he, 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 you know, he put two and two together and he got good backing in Silicon Valley very quickly. You know, he yeah. saw the opportunity. Um, yeah. So, so those guys are, uh, those guys are absolutely the, the exception. Uh, and, uh, you know, in, in that case, there was a lucky coincidence of technical ability and, you know, enough commercial uh, intelligence and or connecting with the right people early on. Okay. Now, now that does not work systematically because there's almost a, a, a there's almost a, a, a dichotomy might be the wrong word. Um, the lack of overlap, whatever that mm. word is for that, between the kind of commercial ability or the commercial ability and or the interest in doing commercial things versus the deep scientific ability. You know, they're typically not in the same person. Yeah. And um, so the solution that has been tried a lot, uh, is the whole idea of tech transfer, tech transfer is a relatively new discipline. Uh, it's maybe, you know, 20, 25 years uh, old and, and thinking has changed on it quite a lot, you know, every, every few years. Um, and there's there's two main there's two main schools of thought, uh, and you know they're both they're both valid. Uh, I prefer one rather than the other, but they're both valid. And one of them is that you find uh, experienced commercial people and you put them together with the scientific people, and you try and create a team that way. Um, and um, would that be in the form of a corporate program, or you mean more no, just no, like no. An experienced individual, right? Don't start me off on corporate programs. I spent about six years running a venture called CorporateSpinouts.com, which I thought was a great idea at the time and turned out to be a <laughs> terrible idea. We'll do a separate podcast on that one. Yeah, there's separate, this, this my war stories, you know. And I, well, I'll tell you one, I'll just tell you one funny uh, anecdote, sort of one of these Please things do. you learn afterwards. You know, I, I, my basic idea was to help people like do like deep tech stuff, but out of companies instead of out of universities. But Entrepreneurship, the, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's got all these words there's i mean all credit to the many thousands of people who are worked in big who work in big companies and are actually tasked with doing this god help them um so the 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 big lesson i learned was that when you meet the guys in the canteen so you're in like siemens or some big company you know and they, they, there's two or three guys and they have this really exciting te- piece of technology that they want to bring out into a new company you know and when you're having your third meeting with them in the campaign and the canteen and they're telling you oh it's thursday today we always have meatballs on thursday you know you say these guys are never leaving the big company you know no. they're, they're so comfortable <laughs> with all this stuff. comfort <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's thirsty thursdays we yeah, yeah. get a free beer oh my god yeah anyway so yeah, yeah, yeah. anyway that's another that's another story sorry so there's two main schools of thought right so so one is the you and and some universities do this, some programs do this, and like some guys do it really well. Like I really like the, the high tech Excel guys in in Holland do a really good job on this. I yeah, think. that's a great. You know, great they example. get uh, they are sourcing really good IP on the one side, and they're sourcing experienced people on the other side, and they're putting together a team. So you guys are going to commercialize this piece of IP, okay? Now that is one approach, uh, and they do a really good job on the early, um, you know, on the early market attraction and so on. Uh, now, and it is a valid approach. Uh, however, I think a better approach, uh, I think a better approach is one where you find a member of the technical team. It might not be the main inventor, but one of the people who understands the technology well, part of the original development team, who is willing to go into a venture. Uh, so you have essentially a credible technical person who is going in with the IP into the venture. And then you put certain supports around that person. Uh, and you're not necessarily um, 
you're not necessarily uh, pushing that person aside. And there, there's another program I, I know where they really do push the person aside. They say, hey, it's, hey, little man, you know, uh, we'll do all the hard stuff. You just every now and again write a paper and sort of we'll, we'll wheel you in every now and again to talk stuff. I mean, I don't like, I don't like that approach. Uh, so the, the key supports, uh, and this is, uh, and I think the best example of this in Europe, and I have looked across Europe pretty extensively, the best example of this is the iCure program in the UK. Now, the iCure program is a derivative of a US program called iCore, uh, but I think the UK guys actually do it better. And what they do is, um, so so they do a couple of really, really good things, okay? So first of all, they're saying, okay, so here's your piece of intellectual property that you're, you're hoping to commercialize. Um, that's great. It, you know, what do you think the market is? Uh, now, is any one of you willing to actually go into the venture full time, you know, full time? And that's the, the, the initial test. So there's got to be at least one of the academic team willing to go in full time and full. I, mean, I could be a professor working, oh, working a 60 hour a week and saying, I'll do this on the side. Right. Yes. Yes. And yeah. I could. That, that's another that's another whole podcast. You know, yeah. but that's one of our criteria it. also with entrepreneurs is that yeah. uh, when we take on these people, they have to be working on their venture full time yeah. because otherwise <laughs> the potential is lost, you know. So, uh, so on paper, the thing, so I guess, you know, there's early tests on paper, there appears to be a, a commercial opportunity, uh, desk research suggests that there is, then you have at least one member of the technical team willing to go full-time into the venture. And then the really important bit uh, that the iCure guys do really well is they, they do a bunch of work with the, uh, founding team and, and the, and the academics who are staying full-time in the venture are quite involved in this as well, which is very healthy, you know, it's, it's constructive. Mm -hmm they they do some work say okay well what do you where do we really think the market is for this you know again desk research uh and and they say okay so we all think it's here this is the this is the market this is the segment and then they say well okay what are the other possible segments so they, they also identify some other maybe adjacent segments or alternative uh, market segments and then the iCure guys uh they set up a whole bunch of calls that they don't rely on the founder to do it. And this is a really, really key That's innovation. That's really interesting. Yeah. yeah. They, they don't say, now go off and make those connections yourself. And 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 it's like, you know, expecting the, and it's a big innovation, expecting the technical founder to do that is a very significant, uh, creates a very significant selection bias. You know, you're narrowing your, your scope of ventures to that tiny subset of, brilliant technical founder who's actually able to do that and you don't want to do that you want to get the best technology into the venture and the way to do that is to uh, get a, 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 is to do that market engagement and and essentially outsource it so so then the program sets up they aim to set up 100 calls 100 conversations and they do a lot of it face to face now pre-covid they did a lot of it face to face i mean they have a budget for sending the guys around the world uh, which is super wow. Um, and, so and it is around the funding, right? If you get into that iCure program, yeah, yeah, yeah. whatever it is, yeah. yeah. So, so they, um, they, um, uh, sorry, yeah. So they take a global view, uh, because which is absolutely appropriate because in you know stuff coming out of major European universities has to take a global view. You know, you you don't have guys in Germany. Uh, working on materials that they think is going to be the best in Germany. They're working on this, like uh, the state of the art. You know? So you've got to, when your market engagement starts, you have to take a global view and they do. Yeah. And then um, almost always uh, the guys find out that the segment they thought was appropriate is actually not the, quite the right one. There's something slightly different, but they there's get a, that. There's a pivot coming. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I mean, it's, it's a pivot at the right time, you know, Yes. Uh, before they've committed funds to developing, you know, if, 
almost always, and this goes back to what I said earlier, you know, in the absence of that kind of engagement, if you told the guys, okay, we're going to give you a million, they'd spend a million in the wrong thing, uh, you know, develop in the wrong direction. Yeah. So, excuse me. So at the end of the exercise, they have significant validation as to the market for what they're doing. And they have actually engaged with the people. It's not desk research, you know, it's, it's actual engagement. And then they are left in a position where they and their potential investors like us are left in a position where there is like robust validation of the market. And not just that, they have a relationship with a bunch of potential early adopter customers. And the IQ program doesn't turn them into early adopter customers, but it certainly leaves them well positioned to, to do that. And that puts those guys way ahead of everybody else because, you know, um, when you have that kind of market validation, and especially when you can get the guys to commit to it, being paid early adopter customers, then everything changes. You know, you can you you can credibly create a company around the uh, inexperienced, commercially inexperienced technical founder. You can say, okay, we're going to build a business around this guy's brain. Uh, or, you know, uh, uh, using guy in the most androgynous uh, sense of the word. Uh, and um, uh, and when you have that validation, you know, your ability to recruit people, your ability to raise funds, everything becomes much, 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 much easier. And you get a different kind of quality of venture. You get a venture that has the vision, the, the original technical founder's vision, uh, not a sort of a, uh, a journeyman uh, uh, entrepreneur who's been teamed up with the technical person who's thinking, okay, how can I turn this into a venture and flip it quickly? Uh, you know, it's a different kind of business guy joining the, the tech guy or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which as I say is valid, you know, and that is, it's, it's desirable for a lot of tech founders, but if you can get the right uh, kind of early customer engagement, then it's, it's all quite different. You know, you can, you can, you can do things more easily. And so the IQ is the best example I've seen. Mm. Uh, and the other thing, that the, the other thing that the, that is unique about IQ uh, but it's not completely. No, it's not completely unique because I know the expreneurs also has this characteristic. It's not captive to a single university, um, and they have a better process now. They're they're pretty much taking over UK commercialization. It's run in three different places, uh, so it's not uh, you know we're Oxford. Uh, these are all the cool. This is all the cool stuff coming out of Oxford. Yeah. It's, it's very limiting, know, right? When the yeah, it's terribly lame, terribly limiting, and you know, and and you know, no tech transfer department is going to say that their own babies are ugly. Whereas the iCure guys are at a, at a remove from all the universities yeah. and saying, I'm and sorry. And they also that's have their own KPIs, right? They have to push out like the tech transfer offices kind of have maybe pressure to also produce oh, yeah, things yeah, yeah. each year. Right? Yeah. yeah, so it's so so uh, uh, now there's variations of that around Europe, but I haven't seen it done anywhere as well and as systematically as the iCure guys uh, do. And I'm engaged with several incubators and, you know, I'm pushing several of them to take that that kind of a model because like it's, and it depends on your resources. You know, if you've got a cohort coming in and it's, you know, it's a cohort of 10 twice a year or once a year, whatever it is, most incubators don't have the resources to say, okay, well, actually I'm going to do the business development for all 10 of these ventures. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's not, it's not feasible, but in deep tech, it's necessary uh, because otherwise you are limiting your successes to that tiny subset, which is the, the, over, the, the overlapping commercial and technical people, which is not necessarily the best ones. Uh, so, so that's a long answer to your question. No, but it's perfect. I, I mean, I'm just really, really happy that you touched on this point of like, you know, the hundred meaningful conversations. And I think it is quite unique that iCure are the ones that make the connections because they obviously develop a commercial name then, or they develop a name with the commercial partners because 
they're they're basically a funnel of potential future innovations that can solve problems for these and those doors are open much more easily when you have a name behind you like iCure rather than John who's a researcher that nobody knows about in Oxford right yeah so well actually I mean honestly like it's so the stuff is so diverse uh, I actually haven't I mean I've looked at a lot of stuff out of iCure and I haven't actually seen much of an overlap in terms of common customers so i think very often oh, they're wow. just cold calling like it's uh, okay it's, it's but it's just, they're just like it's a pure uh, numbers game then that sense they're just they have a process and they just uh, do the dirty work for the particular founders or the um the innovators let's call them uh, to help put them in contact right yes but it's uh, but uh, i've said this to deep uh, I, I say this regularly to deep tech founders it's like cold calling with deep tech is a lot easier than it is normally because if you are mm. you know if you have uh you know, if you've got a, a battery technology that has achieved some stunning, you know, uh, power density or whatever, yeah. uh, you can it's rock up. 10x innovation, right? Yeah, whatever. Yeah, if you got your 10x innovation claim and and uh, I've you and 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 you generally need it needs to be that good. Uh, you know, it's actually not that hard to get doors opened. Uh, yeah. You know, it's possible to find the people who care. It's a nice little tagline, right? That people be like, huh? They'll pay attention when you yeah yeah exactly yeah like this guy could be a complete waste of time but i can't ignore this uh, yeah. and there are people in companies you know and it surprised me like uh, and like i'm well connected with a bunch of uh later stage funds and a bunch of uh, corporates and i would, it has surprised me engage with some of the corporates how uh they actually have people who are out there looking you know uh, a lot of researchers feel really sheepish coming into these big companies but they don't realize that half the time the the key people in the sort of office of the cto are probably already aware of them because they've been looking at the papers on, on that particular topic for the last couple of years you know so there is an open door for uh if you if you if you find the subject matter if you find the subject matter expert within the company there is an open door when you are the relevant deep tech person going along uh, it's just to link those two together that you have an innovation and that you then need to go talk and validate with the potential customer that's yeah. that's the magic right the, yeah. the leap of fate if you will but um you know that that's really fantastic can i ask how do you apply to the iCure program so is this specifically for early stage entrepreneurs based in the uk is it also for startups that are interested in the uk market or, or how does it work and and how do you apply? Is there batches, for example, or how yeah? So there are there are batches. It's run in three locations in the UK. So three uh, university tech transfer departments essentially have got the gig. There's uh, Queen's University of Belfast, there's Warwick University, and the Southampton University, and they each run two cohorts per year. So there's six cohorts per year running through iCure in the UK. Uh, for the most part, yes, you have to be UK university. I know they have taken. Um, it can uh, be any UK university. Is that correct? I think so. I've certainly seen a, a, a I've, I've certainly seen a very broad set of universities. Uh, I think there might be one or two holdouts that are still running their own program, but you know, uh, but I think less and less because the IQ process is so much better than everybody else. Everybody yeah. else's. Uh, so, so I think it's UK only. I've seen one or two from Republic of Ireland have also gone through it. Uh, but I think that's kind of an experimental basis and it's funded by Innovate UK, which is UK tax pair funded. So, uh, and um, yeah, that's it. Okay, cool. And this is typically like, you know, someone coming out of research or still in research and thinking about the possibility of commercialization. So it's still right. it's at the conceptual phase. Yeah, yeah. Perfect. 
Cool. That's great. I mean, I might, might even make a few videos on that because you mentioned it private to me, privately to me before. I mm. think this is a really great structure. We tried to do it the opposite way where we tell people in our boot camps, early stage boot camps with yeah. uh, EIT Health to go and talk to 100 customers. I think, you know, that exercise has value, but with a structured program where they're taking care of making the connections, yeah. ooh, I even think there could be a, another potential business model there. And I know actually of a few in MedTech in particular um, that are also making those connections a very mm. successful business because med tech is similar to deep tech that is also quite specialized and it's difficult to get validation yeah um so yeah I, I really love the approach um what i would love to now jump to is something that you already mentioned very briefly which is just talking about paying uh sorry talking about early adopters so basically converting those potential customers into mm. people that would test or potentially pay you to pilot uh, your technology and stuff like that yeah. i think as you to quote yourself uh, which you told me this is one of the most overlooked forms of funding for most startups people think vc they think public grants they think all this other form of money that they can apply for but they overlook the the idea of revenue at a very early stage yeah so, would you agree yeah uh, sure so 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 i would say the funding is kind of a byproduct uh you know and um you know, it's funny, uh, uh, one or two entrepreneurs in France, for example, have said to me, you know, why are you telling me to do all these things? I can get the money anyway. You know, in, <laughs> in France in particular, the, the the grant funding is particularly generous. Mm -hmm. And I'm saying to them, look, you know, you've got all these early adopters before I would even consider funding and say, like, why? why? I, I can get the money anyway, you know. So so forget about the money part for a moment. It's a dangerous mentality, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, um, so... Um, so why so okay specifically the point about them paying um there's a lot of goodwill towards startups um and there's like all those kind of corporate programs you're talking about there's all kinds of like uh, it's very fashionable for lots of companies to have uh programs that engage with startups and they have they have their in-house incubator there's all this kind of all this kind of cool stuff innovation lab and sap yeah or... yeah yeah and like the, the bean bags and all this cool stuff you know and uh if you could make money at a table tennis table, so there's a business, you know. But anyway, so so if you're a startup and you're in a kind of groovy area uh, and you go out and do, uh, you reach out to a lot of companies, you can get all kinds of big companies who will tell you, oh, that's wonderful. Alan, that's wonderful. I love what you're doing here. I, I, and I'm going to, at our board meeting next week, I'm going to have a slide, you know, about that. That's fantastic. You know, Letter of intent, no problem. Letter of intent, yeah. Oh, yeah you know, yeah. I'll give you that. Just, just rolling them out, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> So, so people can get uh, deluded by if they can get flattered by you know some of the feedback that they get, and they and you know you can get and and you get uh, I see people pitching. They're saying, yeah, lots of interest and all these guys talking to all these guys, very supportive and and the letter of intent thing. Okay, when you ask for money, it's different, uh, yeah. and uh, and that's uh, and it's it's somewhat peculiar to deep tech. Okay, this is this is more it's more relevant to deep tech, and the way I've the way I, I put it across is like this. You know, if you've got a new technology, um, if you've got a new technology to do with something, something really mainstream, like let's say screens, uh, like, like, you know, display screens, yeah. and you rock up to somebody like Samsung and they say, oh, we're really interested in this, you know, uh, th there, there is, 
you are the deep tech founder and you've been working on this for years and you know the german taxpayer and the state of bavaria or whatever have probably spent a lot of money developing what you've got you know so millions quite possibly millions has been spent on yeah. on your display technology up to now in 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 from the public public money a company like samsung uh, in some mainstream use case like that is actually making billions is is selling billions every year in in screens okay um, so, uh, and you show up and they agree that, my God, you have something really innovative here. This looks really interesting. Um, and <clears throat> so maybe you need half a million or a million more to, to develop it to the next level. Uh, and it, it, in all likelihood, you can get um, a, a lot of that money from, from, further, from further grants. Uh, but you're trying to say that we have some customers who are seriously interested. There is a group probably in Samsung, uh, there's maybe 20, maybe 30, maybe 100 people who are working on that same problem. Uh, and they're all PhD level people, you know, yeah. really highly paid. So every month, uh, Samsung probably has a payroll bill of a million or, you know, several million just trying to solve the problem that you're, you're talking about. Like a research team, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. So if you are saying to the investors or to yourself, hey, this is a really, this is a really important problem then it's perfectly reasonable to ask Samsung, say, okay, we have an early adopter program. You know, we are going to do this development to the next level. And we are going to offer, uh, you know, we want to engage with some interested customers, maybe three interested customers, and each one needs to pay us, you know, 30,000 euro or 10,000 euro, whatever it is, a token amount. Um, and if they won't pay that, then they're not serious. The opportunity isn't there because, you know, they have uh, they're That's trying super, to super important point but the opportunity is not there if they're not willing to pay right? yeah exactly and and like you know if you're saying if you're and you're saying to yourself forget about investors uh, and i really i really believe this you know people waste their own time going down the wrong uh, road with with ventures you know i'm running a fund we're going to make a bunch of investments um and if one goes wrong sure you know we hey we no big deal. But if you spend, if you start a startup, you're you're investing three years of your life at least, probably, in the thing, you know, and, and you need to make sure you're going in the right direction. And if you're telling yourself, if your desk research is saying that this is a ten billion dollar market, you know, and you rock up to some of the really big uh, potential users of the thing, and they're not even prepared to pay ten grand or twenty grand on something where you're saying, okay, we we are we are world leading. Our, our deep tech is world leading. Nobody else can do this, you know. And the German taxpayer has spent millions doing this. And we are going to, we have to decide, A, is this a business at all? And B, exactly what direction are we going in? Like, you know, technically we have some choices to make. Uh, so we'd like to engage with some of the early adopter customers, the ones who will pay us. They can influence which our, our, our technical choices and they need to put in some money. And, and, you know, if they're really biting your arm off, you could get, it's dangerous to try and get all your money from the early adopters because they can get too much control and they can seek exclusivity and stuff like that, which you don't want to give them. Um, they get but, a follow on contract for a commercial deal, which would basically cut you a little bit, right? In terms of the, well, no, even, e even at the stage where like in almost every case, if you engage with an early adopter and they perceive that you're weak, they will try to lock you into exclusivity or something like that, you know, at the very beginning. Now, now I mean, you know, if you're, if you have any kind of good advisors, they won't let you do that. They'll ask and you push back and they say, okay, that's fine. We, we thought yeah. we'd ask, you know, we're just chancing around. Why not, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 Uh, but, but my point is that, um, 
you know, you are bringing something really valuable uh, to, to the party. People are kind of apologetic. You know, I'm really sorry. You know, I, oh, you know, of, of course, I realize that, of course, I realize you'll want to see it much more developed before you'd even consider buying it. You know, they don't appreciate the strength of their own position. Shooting themselves in the foot already, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and like, um, you know, they're in the world of commerce. Uh, they're dealing with companies who are trying to make a profit. And, and if, if their claim as to uniqueness is true, um, then asking for a small amount of money from from those companies is a very valid test, you know, and, and it works both ways. If if they are willing to pay, then it's real. If they're not willing to pay, there is no opportunity, you know. If if nobody is willing to pay, then you're either then your claim as to IP leadership is either not true or else there is no global market. If nobody is willing to pay, you cannot claim there's a market for it, and you the should. Is maybe too small, right? Yeah, yeah, it's too small. Go back into academia, you know, don't don't waste your three years. Uh, find a different problem. So uh, now there's another thing as well. You you know, going back to my kind of being flattered, like if you, uh, like pe- people can sign off on letters of intent at a pretty low level in a company. Uh, you know, you can just put it out there. But if you ask for 10,000 uh, euro or 20,000 euro. It's a different it, process, right? It's a different process, exactly. And it requires a bunch of people in that company to say, well, what is this about? What? Why are we doing this? Yeah, why are we doing this exactly? Yeah. And and so it's a much more robust process, and they are committed then. And and as you said, you know, you can you can get into kind of pretty um, good hypothetical discussions about what will they do after the trial. You know, what is the commercial opportunity? And then crucially, from our point of view, as an investor, we can talk to them, and they'll say, yeah, we really like this stuff. You know, this is really cool. Uh, we've been looking for something like this, and you know, so <clears throat> so. Um, the, the the now it's not so to just to be clear, uh, I'm sure there are a whole bunch of ventures that have not done this and have been successful anyway, okay. and um, you know, um, but as a test of viability, uh, it is a very reliable predictor of future success, and the vast majority of uh, the vast majority of university spinouts fail. Like the failure rate of university spinouts is really really high. Uh, and most of them don't do this. Uh, so this tells you there's a market. It tells you the people have their act together sufficiently to be able to do these kind of deals. It tells you a whole bunch of things. So it's a really reliable test. And it is the, and and also like going back to my point about uh, raising money and spending it on the wrong things. It really makes sure that when you are raising the money, you are spending it on the things that your early adopter customers want you to spend it on that are consistent with them doing business with you afterwards. So it may, it creates a really kind of joined up uh, funding process. You're not it's shooting kind of lead startup focus as well, right? That it gets rid of the fluff and focuses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah sorry, it's, right? That, that's right. And, and like, I'm a huge fan of lean startup. I mean, it, it is lean startup thinking completely. Um, the place where it diverges with lean startup is, uh, like. <laughs> You know, if you follow the lean startup thing, you wouldn't have developed the intellectual property in the university in the first place. Uh, so, so you know, you are you are in a different place. But after that, yes, it is it is pretty much lean startup thinking completely. Yeah, at least filtering out the stuff that's not valuable because when they're putting money on the table, they they don't want to care about feature X, Y, and Z. They want to focus on the real core value for their product, right? What's going to solve their problem, basically, yeah, in the future. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so that's so so the big innovation the big innovation we're bringing to deep tech funding is the idea of pushing people kind of narrowly into that idea of look you know uh, uh, you know forget about all the stuff you forget about your product roadmap uh, all the cool stuff you had envisaged you were going to put into the 
product, call it product, the finished product. Yeah. You've done the background IP. There are already customers who are quite excited about what you've already done, okay? So let's capitalize on that. And then the, the key, key question um, is, what do they need to see in addition to your lab-based proof uh, that is going to allow them to make a bigger commitment? So they're willing to spend 10 or 20 you know, grand on the early adopter thing, maybe two or three of them are, and there's a whole bunch of others who've said they'll come in a little bit later. So what do the early adopters and the other ones who are willing, interested to come in later, what do they need to see before they will come in? And it's not necessarily finished product either. It's you know to make the next level of commitment, to place pre-orders or whatever it is. And taking your venture from that backend IP stage to that next stage, the value you create, the you know the increase in value, the increase in probability of success from there to there is enormous. Mm-hmm. And that's what you need the money for. It's just that period. You yeah. don't need the money for all the other things. You know, forget about all the other stuff. They just need to see it working. You know, we need to see it working on samples larger than a kilogram, you know, uh, whatever it is, or some, some they'll be, they'll, it'll be quite specific. And, and then, and going back to the funding thing, um, uh, the, 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 the French shop example, you know, people will say, yes, well, I'm getting a, why am I raising half a million? Because, because I, I, I gather that's what you can get. You know, that's the kind of typical ask. Yes, I'm getting 400 grand of grant funding, but I understand it's feasible to ask for half a million. So yes, I want 900,000. Yeah, that, you know, why do I want it? Because I can get it, as opposed to how much is it going to cost you to get from here to there? And then back to your point, you may find that if you if you look at how much grants you can get, and if you look at the you know the two or three uh, funding commitments you can get from the early adopters, maybe you don't need venture capital at all, or if you need it, it's just buffer buffer money. But that is the way to think about it. Mm-hmm. It's not um, you know, and you you keep a lot of more control of your venture. You're much more aligned with uh, the the market need and everything. So hey, you're closer to the customers. I mean, from my perspective, when we look at startups, like if you've got revenue already, it shows that, okay, you're actually doing something here. This is not just an idea. You've spoken to customers, you've convinced them to write a number on a, on a check and hand it over to you. This is great. This is this is really, really good validation that potentially there's some uh, huge chance here that this could be successful. I think it's really great. And most importantly, like it's also money for your startup that you earned, yeah. which feels pretty good, right? I mean, like you said, it, it feels to me that when you're searching for that funding, the external funding, it's just prolonging the inevitable. So if your venture is going to fail and you get that half a million funding from a VC or some early stage funding, you're probably not going to push yourself to go talk to customers. You're going to probably put that into product development and it's going to maybe even extend uh, the expensive failure that's already on the on the cards, right? Yes. Cool. Great. So look, I think um, we've just we just run out of time, um, Pierce, but I really, really appreciated um, having this chance to, to record a conversation with you. We haven't had many exciting conversations already, but um, there's a lot of takeaways from this. Um, what I would love to ask is maybe how can people get in contact with you? What is the best way if someone is interested to look at Deep Tech Seed Fund? Uh, I know you work with incubators yeah. kind of almost exclusively as a kind of a, a funnel of startups that uh, you work with, right? Uh, so, so deeptechseedfund.com, deeptechseedfund.com is the website and uh, how to contact us there. You also there, you'll get an idea of kind of what, what, what we're interested in. And, uh, you know, it's, um, you know, we're a newish fund. We're feeling our way a little bit. We've very good pipeline. We've only made one deal uh, so far, which is a spin-out, actually a corporate spin-out, spin-out from Sony. Um, uh, but, and it took us a while to figure out that we, that, that it took us a while to figure out that incubators are actually the only way to go. Yeah. Uh, 
and uh, so yeah so deepxsleepfun.com that's where they'll find me fantastic great and I can, I can share of course the, the link to your YouTube I think you have some really great content already there that startups could start to look at as well and, and maybe your LinkedIn as well if that's okay for you I can yeah. put those yeah. links in the description so everyone will be able to find everything for you appreciate okay. that Fantastic. Pierce, thank you so much. I'm going to have to, I'm going to look forward to looking back over this and listening to this uh, podcast again. So really. Yeah. Really and thanks for inviting me on and thanks for your own great work on content and with through Xpreneurs. Uh, really, really welcome. Thank you very much. I'll definitely have you on again soon for sure. Bye for now. Thanks, Pierce.